Well, today, we're going to continue on our series of what we now call the Not-So-Minor Prophets. And we're going to focus on a man whose preaching was timeless, even though it only covered a 15-week period. We've been used to minor prophets looking down the corridors of time and talking about things that still haven't happened. But this prophet focused in on 15 weeks. His name was Haggai. I don't know anybody that named their son Haggai because they wanted a biblical name. And that's probably a good thing. Haggai's immediate audience was a group of Jews who had returned from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. And they had been sent to advance the spiritual and political recovery of the nation of Judah. And their first assignment was to rebuild the temple because the temple was the spiritual symbol of the nation. But after some initial progress, the project had ground to a halt for a number of reasons. And since God doesn't launch any unnecessary projects, things had to change. So toward that end, he sent a prophet named Haggai to voice his concerns, to diagnose the problem, and call the people to renewed obedience. And as he did, Haggai's words transcended his immediate audience and the immediate moment. He spoke to something every new covenant believer has to address at some point, and many times more often than once. And I say that because sooner or later, our spiritual recovery in Jesus will be threatened by three things. Decreasing enthusiasm, increasing discouragement, and misplaced priorities. And it always unfolds in that exact order. We lose our enthusiasm for what God is doing. Then our progress slows and we get discouraged over our lack of progress. And because we like immediate results, we shift our passions elsewhere. We pursue things that promise immediate returns with very little effort, only to discover that they deliver very little in the way of returns and they don't keep their promises. To launch our study of how this played out in Judah and how it plays out in us, I want to read something God said to encourage the discouraged people of Judah. It's in Haggai chapter 2, the first part of the fifth verse. God said to them, My spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Today we're going to talk about recovering our recovery. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father, you know that I cannot preach and teach your word without the empowering of the Holy Spirit, so I ask for it now. And we all know that we could never understand your truth, let alone apply it without the empowering of the Spirit, so we ask for that now. And I pray that today we would come to a greater knowledge of the truth so that we can be set free from the things that hold us back and so that our spiritual recovery in Jesus might move forward without hindrance. 
And as always, we pray these things in your name and for your honor. Amen and amen. And as we listen for the voice of the Lord through his word today, may the Lord be with you. Have you ever launched into a new project with great excitement and great enthusiasm only to lose both and end up pursuing something else? Most of us have. Let me give you some examples. A diet. <laughs> An exercise program that's going to make you buff and the envy of everybody else on the beach. A savings plan. A scripture reading program. All of us have had experience with initiatives like this, and we start with a bang, and we end with a whimper. So if you've done that, there's good news. You're not alone. But the knowledge of that provides very little comfort and doesn't change your reality. You see, for a whole host of reasons, not the least of which is our infatuation with immediate returns, Sustained enthusiasm is always a challenge, especially, especially for those engaged in God's work. And in 520 B.C., when Haggai spoke, the remnant of Jews that had returned to Jerusalem fit that description. They were involved in God's work. Sixteen years earlier, God had moved upon the heart of the Persian emperor. His name was Cyrus. And with that, he issued a decree that the temple of Jehovah was to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And with that, 50,000 Jewish exiles were released from Babylon and sent back to the city of Jerusalem to engage the project, to rebuild the temple. After two years of diligent work, the foundations were completed. And it was a day for celebration and praise. And the prospects for completion of the project appeared to be bright indeed. But all of that was about to change. And here's why. When God's people say, we will arise and build, Satan says, I will arise and resist. He always seeks to deter and discourage and defeat the recoveries that God desires. That's true whether it's your personal spiritual recovery, the spiritual recovery of a congregation, the recovery of ministries, or the recovery of the people to whom we minister. Satan always opposes the purposed recoveries of God. And when he does, his timing is strategic. He isn't discouraged by initial progress. In fact, I'd like to suggest he likes to see you make some initial progress because he knows from experience that disappointment grows best in the soil of previous success. You see, when you've tasted success in your spiritual recovery, the taste of apparent defeat and setback becomes especially bitter. The sharp 
contrast makes your apparent defeat even more discouraging. So the enemy isn't threatened by initial success. When seeking to halt our recovery, have you noticed Satan has lots of folks he can call on to assist him? And in Haggai's day, he called on the Samaritans. In the face of conquest from without, they had compromised spiritually. They had embraced pagan religions and idolatry to benefit themselves politically and economically. They were sellouts. And the faithful Jews despised them for that. And they knew they were despised. So when they heard about the project to rebuild the temple, they were jealous and they were filled with hatred. So they hired political lobbyists to spin fake news. And the lobbyists approached the rulers in Persia and said, hey, you sent those Jews back to rebuild the temple, but they're planning to revolt against the empire. They're going to build walls, they're going to build fortifications, and they're going to declare their independence, and you better do something about it. Now, it was all a lie, but they were convincing. And so Cyrus' successor in Persia authored a new decree. He said, all building projects in Jerusalem are to come to a stop as of this day. And with that, 14 years passed without any progress on the temple. And by the time Haggai spoke, the foundations were overgrown with weeds and covered with dust. And every day that the people of Judah looked at those foundations, it was a painful reminder of what God meant for them, but which apparently was never going to happen. And it's a reminder that in spiritual recovery, a promising beginning may give way to perplexing delays. Because no matter how good your start in your recovery in Jesus, a good start is just that, a start. The start of a long obedience in the same direction. Now earlier, I referred to people facing an apparent defeat. I said that several times and I chose the adjective carefully. Because if you understand Persian legal decrees... They were irrevocable. Once a Persian emperor made a decree, it could not be reversed. When we like to talk about something that can't be changed, something that's inflexible, we often refer to it as the law of the Medes and the Persians. Once it's stated, it can't be changed. So the subsequent edict to stop all building didn't negate the previous decree to rebuild the temple. It simply meant no additional projects could be started. They couldn't rebuild the infrastructure. They couldn't build walls. But the temple could have gone on to completion. So that made it very clear that, while well, we can't build because the emperor told us to stop. That was a bogus excuse. Somebody wants to find an excuse as a lie stuffed into the skin of a reason. And that's what this was. There was no edict that forced them to stop. They stopped 
because they grew tired of the project. And Haggai made that clear. And he made it clear that their loss of enthusiasm for what God wanted had its roots in their selfishness. Fourteen years of no progress had produced a spirit of resignation. And Haggai knew that was a serious threat because a spirit of resignation will suffer the spirit's restoration. There are three words that Satan hates to hear from our lips. Jesus is Lord. But there are three words that he loves to hear from our lips. This isn't working. Because if we say those three words often enough, then we'll say the three words he really wants to hear, I give up. And once you say that, you've taken your eyes off of Jesus is Lord. And once you take your eyes off his lordship, it'll be easy for Satan to convince you that this journey isn't going to end very well. And once you're convinced your journey isn't going to end very well, you don't press through opposition. You shrink in the face of it. Haggai knew that. As he assist, assessed the situation, he knew that the people were facing a problem much bigger than opposition from the Samaritans, much bigger than an emperor's decree, much bigger than their loss of enthusiasm. Haggai understood that opposition may hinder our recovery, but a false interpretation of Scripture will prevent it altogether. See, when opposition arises, if you keep your eyes on God and His truth, you'll press through. You'll fight the good fight. You'll persevere. You'll pray. But when you misinterpret Scripture, you may seek the wrong goals. Or you may expect the right things, but expect them at the wrong time. And that's what had happened in Judah. You see, years earlier, the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that God was going to visit 70 years of desolation on the city of Jerusalem. It was his discipline for their idolatry and their sin because God disciplines those that he loves. And the returning survivors got a hold of that prophecy and they interpreted this way. We can't possibly finish the temple until that 70 years of desolation has come to an end. And that's why if you read Haggai this past week, you'll know he opens by saying this. This people say that the time hasn't come. Haggai knew God never said that. They were saying that. And they were saying it because they had misinterpreted Scripture. And he had to make that clear because a faulty interpretation of Scripture can paralyze our obedience. What you don't know will hurt you. And if you get a hold of a misinterpretation of Scripture, you'll pay a very high price for it. It will paralyze your obedience. And in Judah's case, this misinterpretation of Scripture became two things for them, a sedative and a drug. It became a sedative because it made them indifferent and lethargic. And they didn't take action anymore. 
It became a drug because it excused their negligence and their lack of obedience. And few things are more addictive than an excuse for disobedience. An excuse for disobedience is the crack of the spiritual realm. Once you lay hold of an excuse for your disobedience, once you take a hit of that disobedience and the excuse for it on a daily basis, you'll want more and more and more and more, and you'll become a spiritual crack addict. That's why bogus interpretations of Scripture are never in short supply. Just turn on so-called Christian television. You can get a lifetime's worth of them in a half hour. And you can always find one that will fit your preferred disobedience and your preferred personal narrative. More than that, you can always find people to agree with your misinterpretation that's based on your own personal desires and your narrative. But I want to remind you, in God's kingdom, truth isn't determined by counting hands. Widespread acceptance of a false interpretation doesn't make it accurate. Any interpretation of Scripture that validates disobedience is bogus, no matter how many people applaud it, sign up for it, and salute it. And I could give you dozens of examples of this happening in our culture right now. Biblical interpretations that have been embraced by the church for over 2,000 years are now being set aside as being bogus. People are now saying God's word approves what it clearly disapproves. And because more and more people are buying that in their biblical ignorance, they're saying, see, It's a new movement of God. No, it's not a new movement of God. It's the same old, same old. When God says don't, and you come up with an interpretation that says do, guess who's wrong? (laughs) Judas' stalled recovery also reminds us that we're tempted to interpret Scripture to excuse our own selfishness. In my introduction, I said when enthusiasm for God's recovery in us decreases and the discouragement of our lack of progress increases, to lift our spirits, we redirect our passions somewhere else. We misplace our priorities and we focus our efforts on things that appear achievable, things that appear to offer immediate gratification. Here's how that played out in Jerusalem. Once the people of Judah convinced themselves that they couldn't rebuild the temple, they transferred their passions to building something else, their own assets. And in response to that, God said these infamous words, why do my people live in fancy paneled houses while my house lies desolate. Now, I don't think I need to tell you that scripture wasn't just relevant in 520 B.C. In the United States of America, studies and surveys have shown conclusively that men and women who are professed followers of Jesus, seeking first the kingdom of God, 
annually spend 10 times as much on credit card interest, not principal, as they spend on missions and world evangelism. If the Christian and Missionary Alliance received all the money that Alliance people spend on credit card interest, our missions budget would quadruple. In addition, in the United States of America, average giving to the work of God's kingdom has now dropped to an all-time historical low of 2%. 2% of income. While the same people excitedly sign a mortgage that requires 35% of their income and before it's paid off, take a second loan to remodel. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a nice house. But I'm saying when we live in nice houses and the work of God goes begging, something is drastically wrong. So God's rhetorical question, why? Your house is nice, mine's desolate, still very relevant. In response to Judah's selfishness, Here's what God said. He said, guys, in light of what you're doing, you've got to sow a lot and you've got to reap very little. And you've got to have lots of new clothing, but you're never going to be warm. And all of your wages are got to go into purses that have holes in them. Now, God wasn't being cruel and he wasn't being vindictive. God doesn't need to be vindictive. God was being kind. Because God can't bless misplaced priorities. He can only oppose them. Because if he blessed them, he would be supporting our deception. He'd be supporting our addiction. He would be hindering our spiritual recovery. So God speaks blunt truth the same way an addiction counselor speaks blunt truth. He'll look you in the eye and say, that is a bunch of BS and you know it. And it isn't going to work. You'll never recover your recovery in some substitute for God. What God was telling them is this. The more you invest in a substitute for God, the more it'll demand of you and the less it'll deliver to you. In addiction counseling, that's known as the law of increasing demand and decreasing return. You need more and more and more of the drug to experience less and less and less of the high. You pay more, get less, and that's the future unless you change it. And the same thing is true with idolatry. You see, idolatry is really just putting your emotions and your future in purses that have holes. Now, here's the irony. The very moment that Haggai spoke to Jerusalem about completing the temple signaled the end of the prophesied 70 years of desolation in Jerusalem to the day. To the day. When that 70-year period started, God moved the prophet Ezekiel to record the exact day of the month and time, even though he was in exile in Babylon. And Haggai knew that time. And he calculated 70 years to the day 
And that's when he was speaking to them. So their excuse, their lame excuse, it's not the right time, had run out of time. Even if that 70 years had meant the temple couldn't be rebuilt, which, by the way, it didn't mean that, they were still out of time. There's one final thing that will hinder your recovery of your recovery, and it's mentioned in the second chapter, comparisons. The Bible warns us against comparisons because generally nothing good comes of them. You'll either be discouraged or you'll be inflated. They almost always produce negative effects. And here's what was happening in Jerusalem. Some of the older Jews remembered the splendor of the old temple before it was destroyed. And as they looked at this new one that was being built, oh man, there was no comparison. It, it seemed so inferior. So, so they got even more discouraged. We're building something and it's not even going to come anywhere close to what we used to have. And so here's what Haggai reminded them of. Guys, that temple, that stone, that's just a symbol of God's covenant. It's a reminder of God's covenant. And, and this symbol might not be as fancy as past symbols, but the covenant it represents is still in force. God is still faithful to that covenant. The Holy Spirit is still working out that covenant. That's what matters. You haven't lost anything that really matters. And it reminds us when you're discouraged about your recovery, don't compare where you are to where you were in the past. Claim the grace that is yours in the present because you are in covenant with God. Wish I would have made one additional PowerPoint this week, and if I had, this is what it would have been. Don't prevent the future that can be by comparing it to a past that never was. I say never was because we all know the good old days were never as good as we think they are. <laughs> the good old days seem good because the further we get from them, the more, it's a protective device, the more we forget the bad things and just focus on the good things. I, I hear people talk about, oh, the, the good old days in colonial America when everybody was a believer. In colonial America, genuine believers were probably less than 15% of the population. So much for the good old days. There were a lot of people that quoted the Bible, but they didn't know Jesus and they didn't live it. And, and remember this, if your past was so good, how'd you end up stalled? If you ended up stalled, then it probably wasn't quite as good as you thought it was. So, so don't be, oh, what I had, and if I could just get that back. Uh-uh. See, you start thinking like that, your future is behind you. Focus on God's covenant. Focus on God's grace. I hope you see that Haggai speaks to every follower of Jesus who gets discouraged about their progress, their spiritual growth, their recovery. Haggai reminds us that God said, I'll complete your recovery. How did he say it in the New Testament? He who began a good work in you will complete it. 
He'll complete it. It doesn't depend on your ability. It doesn't depend on your strength. It doesn't depend on your skills. It hinges on his faithfulness. And because of that, your losses don't have to be permanent limits. Your detours don't have to be permanent dead ends. If you've lost your passion, it can be reunited. If you've lost your confidence, it can be regained. The God who can raise the dead can certainly raise your expectations. If you've shifted your priorities away from God to lesser things, then hopefully by now you know they can't deliver the goods. And you can, in humility, shift your priorities back to where they belong. Because your recovery may have stalled, but the covenant is still in place. Our past losses don't limit our future recovery because God's with us and he's as good as ever. Haggai said, this building might not be as fancy as previous buildings, but the covenant and the God who made it, he's as good as ever. And if you've lost your way, God is as good as ever. He can get you back to your recovery. Let's pray together. I'm always amazed but not surprised at how God will take one simple declaration and speak to a hundred different people in a hundred different ways. I count on that. And if God's Spirit has spoken to you today about anything, about misplaced priorities, about losing your enthusiasm, about rising discouragement, about selfishness, about anything in your recovery, if he's spoken to you, he's been specific. God will never say, you need to do better. God will say, we need to do things differently here. Satan is vague. The spirit is always specific. And if the spirit has spoken to you specifically, Scripture says, don't harden your heart. Don't say no. Because the first no makes the second no easier. And it makes the third easier still. Say yes. Because there's never an easier time to say yes to God than the first time he speaks. And commit to him the recovery of your recovery on the basis of his covenant grace. Ask him to reignite your passion. Remove your discouragement and reorder your priorities. Stop embracing excuses and start embracing the covenant and the spirit. You can't hold both. And while my teaching today wasn't designed to introduce the Christian faith to those who don't know Jesus, I believe any preaching of God's truth is evangelistic. And if God has made you aware you need to have God's recovery in your life because you need Jesus in your life. Right where you are in the quietness of your heart, if you'll just pray a simple prayer, wrapping your will around it, and tell God you realize you've been running things on your own and it's not working. There's a void in your heart, and you believe it's a void only Jesus can fill. Confess that he was raised from the dead. Confess him as your Lord and Savior. 
and ask him to save you and give you new life. And he will most assuredly do that. Father, we're good at starting things and then losing our way. You've never started anything and lost your way. So you're a good person to consult and lean upon when we need to recover our recovery. Help us to take the timeless message of Haggai, apply it in this day, and get back on track to the exciting things you intend for each of us, individually and collectively. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I always close each of these one-week reviews of an Old Testament book by talking about the intersection of faith and culture, what culture says, what Jesus would say. Haggai reminds us when you stand at that intersection, culture says your recovery will not be found in some outdated, archaic, ancient book and the idea of some God out there. Your recovery lies within you. Ironically, the world suggests that the very people who made the mess are the key to fixing it. Compromised religion says, no, it, it, it's not you, it's Jesus. But just stick to Jesus. Don't get hung up on doctrine and, and, and interpreting Scripture. Just follow Jesus. But Jesus would say, if you continue in my word, if you pay attention to it, then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. You often hear people say, we just need Jesus, we don't need doctrine. What spiritual insanity. Doctrine is study of what the Bible says about Jesus, about how he works, about what he does and doesn't do, about what he wants, about where he's going. If you misunderstand that, you can't cooperate with God in your recovery. Those who ignore the details of Scripture end up in a hot mess. If you want your recovery to go full bore, you've got to understand how Jesus works. He's told us in the Word. It's up to us to read it. God bless you.